This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. podcast. Um, I'm your host, Emily, and I have a guest here with us, and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, Emily. My name is Chris. Hey, Chris. What's up? Not much. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, Yeah. Is there anything you want to kind of introduce yourself with and kind of let our listeners know who you are? Sure. So, uh, so I, first and foremost, I'm a father. I have three kids, uh, three great kids, two boys and a girl. Um, my partner and I have been together for, uh, most over 20 years at this point, we've been married. Um, I think we said 17 this year. It's, we're starting to get to the point where we lose track. Um, yeah, yeah, so that, I think that's, uh, I work in nonprofits. I live on the East coast. Um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah. Thank you so much. I love, um, when people share a little bit about themselves before we kind of like dive right in, gives people a little sense of who you are. So I appreciate that. Um, yeah. And so, like I said, kind of the next step here is just to open up the floor to you and let you start sharing your story however you want in whatever way makes the most sense to you. Sure. So I think the biggest thing that I want to talk about today is really intergenerational trauma and just the cyclical effect that it has, um, both in obvious, but then in some non-obvious ways or non-really obtuse ways um, within a family. And so um, I've been fortunate that I've had some some experience uh, in education due to um, some past jobs that I've had where I really didn't realize um, the effect the latent effect that trauma was having in my life. And, and I think like, it's crazy because I just chalked a lot of the, those, those experiences or those latent effects up to um, it just being part of my culture or part of my family. Um, You know, the traditions that we tend to hold um, dear and not realizing that they're rooted in trauma and then the effects that that has. So uh, as I mentioned, I'm a father. And so I've got three kids and my kids are 10 years apart uh, from the oldest to the youngest. And I realized that I, I parented a very specific way um, where I used, I, I would use intimidation. I would use, uh, I would use physical corporal punishment um, as a tool to kind of get my kids to do what I wanted them to do either in that moment or in the long term. And it's, it's funny because one of the things that um, my wife and I both uh, would talk about, but never quite got on the same page was the issue of spanking. And so I was raised 
that, you know, if you're, if you cross a line, you get spanked. I was spanked regularly. I crossed a lot of lines. I still do. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's <laughs> yeah, um, just who I am as a person. Um, but I, what I realized is because of that, I, I'm also, um, I am prepared to be punished for my mistakes, even now as an adult. So I'm almost 40 years old and I will uh, be harder on myself almost as a tool of self-preservation because I feel like if I'm harder on myself than anybody else can be on me, um, then I'm actually protecting myself. And so, and I think that is from that, the history of like growing up, being spanked, you know, and just that, that idea that I love you, that an authority figure would say to me, I love you. And because of that, I'm going to hurt you um, to teach you a lesson. Right. And so it, it was crazy. I, I think about five years ago, you know, about five or six years ago, I was in a, uh, in a training class um, for this nurturing parenting um, uh, curriculum that we were taking at work. And, and my job taking this class, I was, I was taking the training because my job was to oversee the parenting educators who were doing the training. So I had to take the training so I knew I could do quality control, basically. I wasn't a parent educator, um, but I was overseeing the parent educators and I was overseeing this contract in, in particular. And so I actually had the, uh, I remember talking with my boss at the time who was like, you need to do this training. I was like, oh, it's a lot of money. And thought, you know, we could use our budget money, you know, better than sending me to this training. Like, I'll never do this training. And, and she was like, no, 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 you really need to understand the information um, to be able to ensure that our um, our parent educators are doing it the right way. And that ended up being probably the best thing for me as a parent. And um, what happened was we were trained by Dr. Stephen Bavilik, who wrote the, the curriculum. And he is um, a really interesting person. He is probably the calmest, most quieting, quiet, like just this, just this really generous spirit um, of a person. And he, it was in these three days that we spent with him, I was like, man, nothing rattles this guy. And I couldn't believe it. And we got through about halfway, I think on the second day of the training, um, the curriculum was uh, about, about, spanking and corporal punishment. And I felt at that time, having been raised in a fairly conservative Christian Midwest household, um, very religious household that, you know, this is just part of who we are. And realized, uh, and, and, and Dr. Bavlik's argument was, you know, a lot of conservative Christians believe that this is part of who we are as a people and, and what we believe um, as a religion. And, and he brought out, you know, the old saying that, you know, spare the rod, uh, spoil the child. And we're all like, yeah, that's in the Bible. That's, you know, and he was like, where? <laughs> and it wasn't, it's not. 
um, it's an old English saying. And, um, and so the, the fact that we kind of conflate this old time saying from, I don't know, the 1600s, um, uh, with something that we think is in the Bible, but we've never really, uh, seen is, is troubling. And I remember at, at the time thinking, oh, that's, that's, that can't be right. And I remember, you know, going back and, and kind of looking up where I thought it was. And I was like, oh no, that's actually absolutely right. Like he's absolutely right on that. And so it started me thinking about, you know, what this meant for spanking my children. Um, and at the time, my my older two boys um, were were probably, you know, they were like young grade school aged kids. And I think the one was in either preschool, I think the middle, who's now our middle one is, was in preschool at the time. And, and my oldest was like early elementary school. And I remember like thinking, oh my God, I have been taught that this is what you do. And, um, you know, this is how you train your children in the way that they should go, right? Like that actually is in the Bible. And so um, I thought like, this is, this is really important. And I can't, I need to raise my child, my children a certain way um, so that they won't stray from, you know, being good humans. And I remember him saying, like, you know, those of us, you know, he had asked the room, like, how many people were spanked as children, right? And so, um, and in a way that we didn't have to, like, show our hands or anything, but he was just like, I don't want to see hands. I don't, I, you don't have to answer this. And I remember speaking up, like, yeah, I was, I was spanked as a children. And, and I actually turned out pretty well because of it. And in fact, my argument at the time was, I felt like I was spanked a lot as a child, and my brother wasn't. And hmm. my brother and I have taken two very different paths in life. And and I I remember at the time chalking up the those two differing paths to the fact that I had been disciplined very strongly um, by my mom growing up, and he had not. And so I remember like kind of trying to do the calculus of why are we so different in our lives? Like, why have we accomplished, you know, such different things? And in fact, thinking that, you know, he had, I don't want to say he had failed, but like he had made a lot more mistakes that, that cost him, you know, some things that, that I hadn't, I had made my share of mistakes as well. But I remember having this like almost comparative well this comparative conversation with somebody about like yeah my mom spanked me a lot and I was often in trouble and because of that I'm I'm more successful now and I remember when Dr. Bavlik said you know how many of you and and I said to him you know I was spanked and I turned out pretty good and and he said well what if you turned out pretty good in spite of being spanked and at the time, I, I remember thinking, like, oh, this guy's full of shit. Like, you, <laughs> dude, like, no, nah, you twist trying, those words. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're trying too much. Like, you're, you're doing too much and you're, and you're trying too hard. And then, but I, I just like that night, I remember thinking, like, 
what if he's right, right? Like thinking, going through just the the different um, logic models and saying like, so if this if this is the case, then then this was the output, this was the outcome, then this must be the input, and this must be true. And then thinking that that may not, he may actually be more true, he may be more right than I am. And that changed everything for me. And I think now, so now I've got my my wife and I, we have three kids. Um, like I said, my oldest is in his teens. The youngest is 10 years younger. And we look at the difference um, of how we're raising our kids now to how we were raising them then. And when I look at my kids, there are some, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but there, there are some distinct differences. Um, my oldest, we were in the Midwest. We still were very um, wrapped up in those traditional, you know, our family values that we believed were really important um, versus my middle son and my youngest, my daughter, having grown up on the East Coast and us being less concerned about what our family thinks of us. Uh, both my wife and I um, have become less concerned about that and really more concerned with raising our kids to to be empathetic and caring for others and real and not feeling like they have to that they have to present a, a certain person to to their audience right like we want them to be smart about it and and we can talk about code switching and all of that but really feeling comfortable being their authentic selves and not just their authentic selves amongst their friends um, or their siblings but really amongst us as their parents and and anybody else whom they feel comfortable with right and so like helping them understand what it means to be your authentic self and to be you. And so I'm almost 40 and have spent really the last 10 years trying to figure out who I am, who my authentic self is and how I present my authentic self um, to different people. One of the things that I have, ta- I have always taken pride in um, is that I can, I, I will jokingly call myself a, a social chameleon, right? And so like I can fit in in pretty much any any group of people. Um, and what I what I realized was is I had learned how to show a certain part of who I am depending on what the group is um, that I'm a part of at that time. And so not really ever showing my true self, but to very few people. And I also realized that I don't really love doing that. Like I can, it's a survival tactic. Um, but it's not something that uh, when I feel comfortable, I will show you who I am and I don't hold it back. And And I've realized now that um, people either love me or they hate me, um, but they at least know who I am. And And so I've lost this like, desire to be to be liked by everybody um who I meet like I you know I just I've gotten to a place in my life where I'm like 
I am who I am and you like it or not, but that's your choice, right? That's, that has nothing to do with me and I can't, I'm not going to affect you in that way. Um, to try to get you to like me because, you know, I need this, I need you to like me. And so I think this really comes back to this, this desire to be liked and, and the, the skill or this, I don't know, this survival skill of presenting myself in a, in a very specific way um, really comes from my family. I was going to say, and like this, this thing that you're speaking to with your kids, your desire to, for your children to be their whole authentic selves in front of you and your partner and, and to be loved unconditionally and accepted totally and fully for who they are. And I don't know that all kids get that, you know, like if you're censoring yourself or if you feel like you have to change yourself in front of your own parents, you know, like that should be the place where you can be all version, you know, all facets of yourself and still be loved unconditionally. And I'm hearing like the juxtaposition of like, that is not what you got as a kid. You felt like you had to like change and censor yourself um, to be accepted and, and please your parents. And, and you're trying to like stop that in your own family cycle and be like, you can be whoever you want to be kids. And I will love you no matter what, which is like such a stark contrast. Yeah, I think um, it's it's interesting that, you know, I, I parent my wife. Well, my wife and I both kind of parent in this like we want to be real with our kids. Right. And so we're not we try not to expose them to anything too early. But like my teenage son will ask me about how I was as a teenager. Right. And so. And I tell them, like, this is the way that I was around certain people. And this is the way I was around my friends. And we've had conversations about how I I had different groups of friends uh, growing up. I had church friends. I had school friends. I had neighborhood friends. Like, I had all of these these, uh, little boxes, these little groups of friends um, that I compartmentalized and um, had actually had a a point in my life, probably uh, like mid high school, where a couple of these groups converged, and I didn't know what to do with that. And it took me a while to figure out like what to do with that, and and how to how to how to treat that, how to you know work within these different groups. But I think, like as I was saying earlier, I think the big thing is this this idea of presenting my ideal self to the audience um, to which of which I'm in front of came from family. And it's funny because I've, I've spoken with certain family members about how um, we're quick in, in our family, our extended family, we are quick to present ourselves as this big united front. Um, When in reality, like any other family, we have stupid little quibbles all the time and big fights and little fights. And, you know, there's all of this, um, there's, there's all of this pressure, I think, to, to be a certain way. And, and I think for me, I, I live 
a thousand miles away from most of my family. My family is in the Midwest or in the Southwest, um, mostly in the Midwest and Southwest. I live on the East Coast, so it's easier for me to say I can be and I can be who I want to be. I can be who I believe I should be, and I should raise my kids or my my partner and I. We should raise our kids in the best way that we think, because literally there's nobody around us telling us any different, right? And and even though we have relationships with our parents, um, they can they can give us advice, but they know at the end of the day, we're going to do what we're going to do. And sometimes that physical space is required to have the best possible relationship. You know, it's like, you can't come over and knock on my door and get in my business. Like I am a thousand miles away. And sometimes that is like, that's helpful in creating built-in boundaries that allow you to do what you want to do without interference. Absolutely. And I think for my family, that really comes from, um, from intergenerational trauma. Um, I, there's, there is a history of physical, sexual, mental, emotional abuse in my family that I didn't realize was there until I left. And I had that space and I had the, the experience. And, um, you know, I went through um, this nurturing parenting class and I went through other trauma informed care classes. And I started recognizing the signs of PTSD and unresolved trauma in my family. Not just, not just, I mean, immediately it was, I saw it in my mom and, and the way that she had certain relationships and inability to to keep certain relationships. And I see like, I see this um, unresolved trauma really affecting her relationships, uh, romantic, um, platonic, um, just like I, I can see the cycles. And, and I really think back to just the, the history of not dealing with the trauma um, that we have experienced. And, and so this, like this trauma um, or these, this unresolved trauma just festering in ways that aren't easy to link it back. Um, But I think like I've heard, I I was really fortunate. I, I didn't uh, experience, uh, sexual abuse, um, but it's prevalent in my family. Um, I would argue I did experience some mental abuse. I did experience some physical abuse. Um, And not in a way that, it's funny because I would say not in a way that was, that was obvious in, in this, in the sense that like, I'm hurting, therefore I'm going to make you hurt. Um, But in a, in the sense that, that I had myself, like, this is how my parents raised me. So this is how I'm going to raise my children, right? And and what I realized was all of this experience, all of this education that I was receiving or that I was undergoing, um, it fell to me to break cycles of intergenerational trauma in my family. And that's hard. That's a hard realization to come to. But what it did for me is 
it brought me to a place where I resolve not to be, uh, not to bring physical harm to my children. And at that moment, my wife and I were talking and I was like, you know what? I screwed up. I shouldn't be spanking the kids. I shouldn't be. They shouldn't have to fear their dad um, in those moments when, as a parent, I'm so angry that the only thing I want to do is to lash out and hurt them because I'm upset or I'm hurting. Um, all I'm doing is is reinforcing this intergenerational unresolved trauma that has said in my family, I hurt, therefore you are going to hurt. And I'm upset, therefore I'm going to hurt you um, so that you know how upset I am. And when that struck me, that was just a really powerful moment in my life that I realized I'm doing the same that has been done to me and I need to stop. And I need to stop because if I don't, um, my kids may not. And the cycle will just keep going with them. As it has for generations, right? And so, and and as this field of trauma and, you know, neuroscience is is coming around, um, I'm really fortunate. I live in Philadelphia um, and... Dr. Sandy Bloom is based out of Philadelphia and she she's come up with this sanctuary model and she's talking about, you know, building um, sanctuary in places of work and school and home. And, you know, there's a there's a uh, an annual trauma conference at a local university here. And like all of this, this new uh, emerging science is coming out of not all of it, but a big part of it is coming out of Philadelphia. And I'm, I'm really fortunate to live in a place where this is happening. And so I was able to really be on the front front end of this cutting edge science and helping me realize, not just as a professional who works in human service nonprofits, but in my home, like these are ways that I can I can break these cycles. And so I'm really fortunate that that this has this has been true for me. Um, I think the challenge now is to help my friends who are parents, to help those in my generation and my family understand this is what this is how this trauma has has really perpetuated through our family. And these are the ways that we can we can stop these cycles from repeating themselves. And it's really hard. It's not an easy conversation to have. And and often what I have found is that most of the people, my brother included, um aren't ready to have these conversations. Yeah. I can imagine it generates a certain amount of shame. Oh yeah. Um, no, you know what I mean? Like that's hard and accountability without shame. This is a theme actually that's been coming up a lot this season, but accountability without shame is really hard. Um, especially I can't even as a parent, you know, when you're so hardwired to like protect and love and, you know, guide and want to, yeah, protect your child, then like the 
the dissonance of like, wait, then I'm harming my child. And then what does that mean about me as a parent? Am I a bad person? Like, I just, yeah, that's a lot to sort through. And a lot of people, when they're confronted with feelings of shame, will like go on the offense, go on the defense or completely just check out and ignore it. And and it's, it's because we don't want to like have to think of ourselves as like a bad person or a bad parent. And that's so hard. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, I know for myself, it was that, that moment of, of shame, of guilt, of, you know, all of those feelings that I didn't want to feel because I thought everything I was doing, um, as far as, you know, moving, moving to a different city, pursuing, you know, higher levels of education, um, all of these things I was doing in my head were was to ultimately serve my family and set my kids up for a better life than I had growing up. And, and I didn't have, here's, I didn't have a terrible childhood. Um, but there were some difficulties I had, I grew up in a single parent household. Um, my, my mom has a physical disability um, at the time when we were growing up, she had a high school education and we grew up in a part of the country where her being a woman, her being Latina, her being physically, you know, having a physical impairment didn't help her and a high school education. None of those things were helpful to her to secure work so that we could live, you know, a, a middle-class life. Right. And so we struggled really we struggled a lot and it's it's interesting because when i talk to my mom about this there's that like you said this this uh feeling of shame right and and she will point to the fact that neither my brother nor i knew that you know how hard we how hard she she worked to have to provide for us and you know but i did have an awareness of of our level of affluence versus those in my town. Um, I was aware of socioeconomic class before I even knew what it was. Um, it's interesting because uh, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine of in my hometown, um, I associated success with the white hegemony of my hometown. Like I thought I needed to look and act and sound and be as white as I could so that ultimately I could be successful and really was ashamed of, of being Latino, of being different, um, of, of my culture and my ethnicity and my race. And I had this shame, like, that's not who I am, right? Like I'm not, I'm, I might be of Mexican descent, but that's not all I am. I, I don't know what my dad was like all of this stuff growing up that I didn't know about myself. And so, but my name was Chris and my last name is not Latino. And so, um, there was nothing that would suggest that I am Latino outside of, you know, maybe I've got darker hair and certain features uh, of myself, you know, may, may look that way. But even if you saw me now, um, most people don't guess that I'm Mexican American. Um, and so because of that, I use that to my advantage, right? Like that's where that cultural chameleon 
part of me was born where I'm like, you can't really guess who I am. So I'm going to be me and let you think you know who I am um, and present, you know, your ideal uh, of me instead of who I really am, my authentic self. Um, and that, that was a big theme for me growing up. And, and I think, again, I, I relate this to my larger family because we still do this. Um, when people get married in my family, it's a big deal. Everybody in the family knows about it. Nobody knows when we get divorced. Nobody knows when, you know, um, I, I'll use my, my personal example. So coming out of high school, I was, I, I had a lot of success coming out of high school. I wasn't, I wasn't a great high school student, mostly because I didn't have to be. <laughs> and so, but I was able to secure a whole lot of scholarship money. Um, and in fact, uh, I was involved with Boys and Girls Club growing up. And, and because of that, um, it, I was able to go through this program, this youth of the year program that they have and um, got to a point where at, I was competing for the national youth of the year title. Um, and they don't call it a competition, uh, any of that, but truly it's a competition. And, and I was my local, my state and my regional representative. I had won all three levels and I was, I was one of five kids who was competing for this national title. Um, and they judged based on grades and, you know, civic involvement and involvement in the Boys and Girls Club and, um, you know, all of these factors um, that said, you know, this is a kid who we want to be the face of our organization uh, for this next year. And, and I remember I got to meet, uh, I got to be in the Oval Office, got to meet President Clinton um, Whoa. yeah. And it was great. It was fantastic. And it was his last year in office. So he was super chill. Um, and we had a great, he's like, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, <laughs> fact, what up, kids? yeah. I think we were supposed to be with him for half an hour, 45 minutes. We ended up in there for almost an hour. And like oh. his aides were like, Mr. President, you know, you have another meeting. He was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm with my friends. Like, let me be with my friends and, you know, just spending this time with us. And we were just, chatting and taking pictures and he was show, he telling us all these stories about the different accoutrements in his office but I remember like I made my local paper I, I was highlighted in um on on the Oprah Winfrey show I had all of the scholarship money and and my mom was reminding me about this so we went to to uh the town in Illinois where the bulk of uh, a big pocket of family is and everybody wanted to spend time with me. Everybody wanted to see me. Everybody wanted to take me, you know, around this, this small town to, to show off to their friends. Um, and then I went to college and I wasn't ready for college. I thought it was, but I wasn't. And I failed out after three semesters, I failed out. And there was a lot of shame I felt because I was like, I let all of these people down. I let these organizations down that had given me the scholarship money. I let all of these people in my hometown down that, you know, I really looked up to. Um, and I let my family down. And I remember I didn't see my family for probably a year after that because I didn't want to tell them that I had failed out of college. And 
a lot of my family, I think, didn't know for a long time that I had failed out of college because it's normal that we all talk about the teen people article and the, the when the Oprah, you know, episode that I was on and, and meeting the president and being in the paper, all of that we celebrate and we're all about. But then when I failed, it was, we didn't say anything. And that was normal. That's normal. That is normal in my family. Like saving face and yeah. wanting to present to the public as like perfect. Yep. And, and I think that I didn't talk with a lot of people in my family about my failure, my initial failure in college until I was able to go back and be successful and, and finish my undergrad. And then I was offered a scholarship uh, for grad school. And so that's how we ended up coming out to Philadelphia because I, I, I came out here for grad school and, you know, all of this pride about, you know, I have a grad school scholarship. Like not only did I finally finish my undergraduate um, degree, but now I'm going on and getting a graduate degree on scholarship and, you know, and on an academic scholarship and like how, how rare that is for people to, to get those types of opportunities. And so once again, I was like, you know, on top of the world. And so we could kind of show off. And it wasn't until I had some space away from my family to realize, like, we have normalized this, this idea that we only talk about um, the successes in our lives. And not the failures, right? Like, we don't normalize failure. And, and I, I really attribute that to unresolved trauma in our family. And I think it sends the message that acceptance is conditional. Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? On some level, whether it's conscious or not, like as a member of the family, especially like a young person growing up, it sends this message that acceptance is conditional, which is, um, you know, it can create like it's not safe. It doesn't feel safe to be vulnerable or to say, like, I messed up or I made a mistake or I need help. It's like, you have to fake it till you make it. And that's not what, unfortunately, that's not how being a human works, really. Yeah. And I think like what that ends up doing is um, for those, those of the family who are still close um, in, pro, in, in physical proximity, I think it's this, they are still trying to pursue this ideal version, this, this ideal version of themselves according to the family, right? Where I feel the freedom to be my authentic self outside of any ideal from my family, right? So if they accept me, they accept me. If they reject me, it's fine. I I had this conversation with my mom a few weeks ago. I I still have regular contact with only a couple of my cousins and and I care deeply about those cousins but not because I don't care about the other parts of the family but because I don't want to play the political you know the game that I have to play to belong to that part of the family right and so the cousins who don't play that game either or don't feel like they need to play that game um I almost feel like we've been a part of this matrix that we've uh, taken uh, 
the red pill and have broken free, right? Like, and there's, I love that analogy. (laughs) And there's only a couple of us, but, um, and, and, you know, to, to my cousin Stevie, who um, founded We Are Her and and really is doing this really important work, um, you know, I'm so proud of her, but like, I am also, um, I, I'm in awe of her courage, right, to speak out about the, about not only her, her own trauma, but like the trauma that we have. And like she is, she and I have had these conversations and I hope I, I, I hope I'm okay in sharing this, but um, she and I have had conversations about how do we bring this change about in our family. And one of the things that I realized was the older generations, they're in it. They're, they've experienced it and very few, if any, are going to change. Um, so I'm on the older end of my generation. I think by my generation, you know, we're older millennials, right? So we're all like, uh, uh, younger forties to, to twenties. Um, but like, I remember having this conversation with Stevie, like the, the ones that we can influence are the ones who are, are in our age group. And that's where we can have, that's where we should have, um, the ability to help break those cycles of trauma in our family um, and to to root out the intergenerational trauma. And there's not, at this point, there's not a lot of appetite for that. And and it's it's hard to see. It's it's disheartening because I I know what a difference it's made in my life. And let me say, I am in no way a perfect parent. I still make mistakes um, and I will screw up um, on a regular, you know, I'm a a flawed human just like anybody else. And so, but I think the, the big difference is it's not in how much I love my kids versus how much my cousins love their kids. It's in the difference is where when I screw up, I will stop, reflect on it, and then have a conversations with my kids and admit that I yeah. screwed up, right? So, yeah. and and my hope is not only do they see, are they normalizing failure in the sense that, not that they are often failing, but like they learn from failure, right? So that's that's been a big life lesson for me is I am, I learn from my failures. Um, and in life, in my professional life, in my personal life, um, when I fail, I, I can stop. I can understand that I failed and I can try to figure out what happened to lead to that failure so that I can I can learn and do better. And with my kids, we have these conversations and and I've said to them, I'm not upset that you failed. I will be upset if you don't learn from this failure. Um, and when I lose my temper, I acknowledge to them that I failed, that I lost my temper, that I did wrong. And while they were wrong in whatever they did, it didn't, it doesn't justify me making the decision to fail them as a father. And so one of the ways that I've seen this live out, um, for me, um, with with my kids is um, this past Christmas, um, 
I've got I've got a pretty nice TV. I you know a nice like flat big flat screen TV, and my middle son was um was playing video games on it. And he gets when he's playing video games, he's playing Fortnite or something. And if he loses, and we're working on this, but if, when he loses, he's very demonstrative and he's very like he gets angry and and will kind of you know lash out like a typical you know fourth or fifth grader right like he's he's 10 years old that's what that's what they do um (laughs) but um it was i remember this very distinctly in fact we were just talking about this yesterday it was three days before christmas and i had just bought this tv probably three months um before um i had been i had been saving up for it i found the perfect deal and i bought the tv and i was all excited about you know upgrading this tv that you know we had had the previous one for like a decade and um because he was flailing his controller slipped out of his hand and broke the tv and i oh god i can just like viscerally feel <laughs> i am 10 again i'm in my parents living room i just broke the tv yep. i'm like oh buddy yep. i'm so sorry and he that sucks. knew he screwed up and yeah. i like i instantly lost my cool but in the past it would have probably resulted on some sort of physical lashing out and, you know, and I, I, uh, to be perfectly honest, I, it wasn't like I was sitting there very cool. Like, you know, I lost my temper and I was yelling and he was yelling and, you know, and I was like, what did you do? Like, what the hell? And he was like, I don't know. I'm so sorry. And like, he felt terrible. And, and I was angry. I was, I was really angry, but other than us kind of screaming at each other um, and him like really being afraid of, you know, just being in trouble, um, there was no physical violence. There there was nothing yeah. physical. Like I, and I, I could feel myself, I was angry and I knew I had to like separate myself from that uh from that situation and calm myself down and i and i remember calling a friend i remember doing some breathing exercises and calling a friend and you know talking to my partner and all of this stuff like you know just trying to calm myself down and and my son you know kind of locking himself in his room and you know just crying in his bed and after some time had passed and we had all we had both calmed ourselves down, actually having a conversation, and and he got grounded, and he got grounded for a while enough that it you know that he remembers it, um. But it 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 changed the behavior, um, so there was no there was no physical retribution, um. He was he did have a negative consequence, um. But he was grounded from video games, so it was nothing like you know he didn't. He wasn't fed or he, you know, any of that. And the behavior was that, you know, when he loses in a game of Fortnite, he doesn't flail anymore, right? Like he still, he might get upset. He might, you know, he might, you know, scream at his, whoever beat him in the game or whatever, um, and typical stuff. And he's still very competitive and that's fine, but he doesn't, he he doesn't do what he used to do. And so we had a conversation, he and I, about like, that's okay, right? Like you can be upset. Um, just still realize that it's a game and it doesn't matter if you win or lose because it's a game, it's a video game that that 
that I end up spending a lot of money on because he, you know, he gets me to buy these little cards or whatever. And I'm seeing too, like this parallel between the two of you, which is really interesting. Like as you're telling this story, you're talking about like your son and his big like emotional reactions and then like you and your big emotional reactions. And it really highlights this like intergenerational trickle down effect, but like the ability to say, stop, like we need, both of us need to like, you know, stop this like trickle down effect from continuing on. And like those big emotional reactions are part of that intergenerational trauma. And when those are welling up, that's like, it is a trauma response. And when you have like the anger and the, and like, you know, this huge emotion, like it's basically hijacking your, your rational mind. And so it's so hard to be able to like, it's not about, yeah, it's hard to like think logically, like you're just like, you know, it hijacks everything. Um, But I think being able to like realize in those moments, it's like, we can't always help that piece of it, but the stop, hold on, I need to do my breathing exercises or like, let's work through this together. We can both do better. Let's figure out how we calm ourselves down, whether that's we self, both self time out and then we talk or like whatever those strategies are. It's it's less about like you, you're not going to be perfect and you might have those big, you know, huge swellings of big emotions, but it's and that's OK. It's how we like do what do we do with them? That counts. Yeah. And I and I think like that is. We're absolutely getting to that point where it's and again where I talk about like the difference in my in the way that my children are growing up um we almost look at them as like these different eras of being parents um you know where the first two kind of experienced the Chris that believed in spanking um but my oldest you know seeing it more than either of the younger two my middle one seeing it because at, at some point I had got to the justification that I'm only going to do it when nothing else works. Right. And so like, it was kind of my last resort and, and now the youngest not knowing it at all, because I see the, how, how damaging and um, counterproductive it is. Right. And so, and so it'll be interesting to see the social scientists in me, is interested to see like how it affects them um, as they become adults, right? And so like, what are the differences um, in my children because of the way that I parented? Um, you know, for for our youngest, um, and we're still learning. We're not we're not at all perfect as parents, but like um, we definitely have a a lot more. Um, experience and we have many more resources um that we can you know dip into um to help us deal with our own emotions and our 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 trauma responses better right uh, the fact that we know that there are things that we do that are literally trauma responses that I didn't know before um and so now all of all all three of our kids know that, you know, this was, this was a response and it was either, it was either um, a response that was a trauma response or not, but it also like, this is a helpful response and this isn't right. And so like trying to help, we're trying to help our kids understand what, um, 
what helpful um, things that they can do to deal with their negative emotions. And I like the framing of helpful, not helpful versus good or bad, because that makes it a moral issue, which only encourages shame. And helpful, not helpful is like, oh, this isn't about me being good or bad. It's like, how do I, yeah, helpful. Is this the serve me? Does it not serve me? Is this going to make the situation better or worse? You know, like, um, yeah, I like, I really appreciate that language, which it seems like a subtle difference, but those are the, like the really, those are the subtle messages that kids, whether you realize it or not, are like picking up on. And, and it makes a big difference, I think. Yeah, we, we talk a lot about, we're less concerned about raising our kids to be, um, to have a strong moral compass. And we're raising, we're really raising our kids to have a strong ethical compass, right? So yeah, like I love that. how the, the ultimate goal is, um, you know, for, for our children is, are they pursuing a life where they are, they're happy with who they are? They're happy with their, you know, they get to define their own success. And so they're happy with it. Um, and and they are treating those around them um, with respect and dignity, right? And so, like, are you making your, your immediate world a better place because you're here, right? Like, that is our, our ultimate question. And I, I know I ask that for my, of myself, both personally and professionally, and I tend to succeed more than fail, although I have had, you know, notable failures in that. But um, I also like that is always my goal is to whatever I'm involved in to make it better because of my involvement in it. And and so impressing upon our kids, like just make your class, make your classmates, make yourself better just because you're working to get better. Um, and then you get to define it. Right. So like, um, we, it's easier to say, cause, cause my oldest is 14. Um, so he hasn't, but he's entering high school and in Philadelphia, we live in the city of Philadelphia. So, um, you know, he had to apply for high schools, um, because there's a lot of high schools and the, the ones that are that are at the top of the list are hard to get into. And so it was a learning um, activity for both of us because one, he was the first one to have to do this. Um, my wife and I both grew up in the same small town in the Midwest and we just went to the same high school. Cause that was the only one for like 40 miles or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I, I joke about how I went to the top public high school in my city or in my town growing up. And and then my oldest son will always retort with, well, it was the only public high school. Right. But it was still the top one, you know, and so uh, we talk we talk a lot of trash to each other um, and, Pope, you know, it's it's fun. Like we have a lot of fun with that. But the fact that he learned, you know, um, he learned through this process. And now because he was the first and I'm also the oldest. So I, I feel I feel a lot of this that you know, he's got to figure this out so that his siblings will, will learn from his experience. Right. And so I absolutely, my wife and I both, um, are both the oldest of our families or of our, of our siblings. And so we definitely have felt that where we were the first and we had to figure it out and all of that. But my point being for my, my oldest son, I had a high school that I really wanted him to get into and he ended up not, but the one that he did get into, I think is going to be the better fit for him and help set him up for 
post high school success and and even to go so far as for him to define that right so if he wants to go to college then he you know we're going to help him try to to get into college and pay for it and all of that but if he decides he wants to go into the military he wants to go into trade school like whatever he decides that what he wants to do he gets to define his success and he knows that um that his mom and I, his mom and his dad are, are going to support him and push him to be the best at whatever he decides to be, but also support him and, and celebrate his success, however he defines it. And that's like part of learning how to be an adult. And I don't feel like a lot of us have gotten that education. Like, like you're mentioning, you know, there's so many more resources. There's so much more knowledge around like how to empower your kids, but so many of us did not get that. And I think like this, the way you're speaking about um, empowering him to make his own decisions about his own life, which is scary as a parent. I can appreciate that. I, I don't have kids. I don't want kids. So I can't even imagine how scary it is to be like, okay, well, you have to make your own choices now as a little adult. But like, you know, you're, you're talking about you making all of these decisions based on what you thought your parents wanted from you and their expectations and their wants and their needs. And it caused you this like identity crisis well into your adulthood where like you're trying to break that with your kids and encourage them to figure out what it is that they want. And yeah, you're there to support and guide and encourage and all of the, those things, but you know, really setting them up so that they have that decision-making ability to do for themselves, which is really, really cool. And I think, I thank you. I think um, the biggest thing that that is still a challenge, but for all three of our kids to really define their own success, it's it's going to be key, right? So I think like mm-hmm. um, the the younger two right now aren't at a point where they're you know the one the our youngest is in preschool, so you know the fact that she just wants to be in school is is a win for us. Um, yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, and even for our middle one, like he, he, um, finds school pretty easy. So he like, he's like, oh, it's so boring. Cause he's, you know, he's obviously not challenged enough. Um, and so to, to push him to, to be better with it. Right. And so we go so far as we don't, even when it's like report card season, we don't pay as much attention to grades. Um, we're starting to with the oldest cause it affects like his, you know, it affected his high school uh, decisions as well as his post high school. But up until this point, we had only ever rewarded um, um, citizenship marks, right? So like I asked all of his teachers, like I, I, both for both of my boys, you know, are they good classmates? Are they respectful? Are, do they help you? Do they help, you know, other people in their class? Like those are the things that we care about. And so those are the things that we reward. And so they know that those are the things that we're, we're paying attention to the grades. I tell, I tell both of my boys all the time is the grades are going to be what they are. You, if you can look me in the eye and tell me that you put the work in, the grade is less important to me than knowing that you made the effort. Right. And so my kids have tested me on that. My, my oldest came back with a grade that was less than ideal. And it wasn't because he struggled. It's because he didn't do the work. And he, and he got punished for that. But, it, and I, I let him know, like, it's not because of the grade itself. It's because you didn't do the work. 
And so the grade could have been different and it might not have been, we don't know, but at the end of the day, we both know that you didn't put the work in. And, and a lot of time I find, because I'm a supervisor at work, um, I oversee a, a team of people like for my staff, I, I want my staff to, to do their best every day because we, we work in a neighborhood that we want to have a deep impact in um, with the kids and the adults that we work with. So I'm like, this, this actually affects lives, right? And so for my kids, this comes back to my kids as, you know, just put the work in. You will get, you'll get the grade that you worked for. And so um, I know, and this is rooted in experience too, but I know that there were, there were classes um, in both my undergrad and my grad, grad work where I struggled and got less than an A or B, which is to me, it's always, it was pounded into me <laughs> at a young age. It was all A's, right? And so if a B seemed like a failure um, because that goes back to the whole, you know, we have to show the family that we're better than, you know, we're better than everybody else or that we meet this high level. And and at the end of the day, I, I have had classes where I've gotten a C um, and was really proud of that grade because I knew I worked my ass off to get that grade, right? And so that really, it, it may have affected my GPA, but it didn't affect my success, right? Like I still graduated from, from my undergrad institute uh, institution and I still I still earned a, a academic scholarship to my graduate institution, right? So like right. one C didn't kill me, um, right. but I worked my, my ass off for that C. And, and so I could say without a shadow of a doubt, like I did the best I could. And so I could hold my head high. And it's it's when in life and work, um, when I know that I didn't give it the effort that it des- it deserved is when when I don't feel a sense of pride. And so that's what I'm trying to impart to my kids, like put in the work so that you feel that personal sense of pride. Like mom and dad, we love you. Um, and if you are satisfied if you are you know you feel successful we're going to feel that you're a success right like you don't need to meet our ideal you you define and I know I said this a lot but this is really important to us that our kids define their own success and so to me it's the, the important lesson is are you putting the requisite work in because if you're just phoning it in you could do more or you could do better right and I really appreciate how you're like humanizing your, you know, the whole experience of like education and expectation setting and defining success, the relative nature of that based on the individual and also just like allowing people to be human. You're doing that for your kids, but it sounds like you've had to do a lot of that self-work to be able to do that for yourself, which then allows you to extend that same compassion and human humanizing sort of perspective to your kids, which is, and I, I, I really, really appreciate too, like the tangible examples you're giving of like, it, it sounds, it can be something as simple as like re, resetting expectations around grades. Like that is in your household, how you are breaking that intergenerational trauma. It's like, it's not just about the grades. It's about the whole, like the whole safety, like the whole environment of safety that you're creating for your kids that you didn't get to have. But now you sort of get to like, recreate and redefine that in your own parenting style and like 
essentially like stopping that trickle down effect for your kids. And hopefully those are skills that they can take into the future too. It's like really, really cool that you're giving those tangible examples because it can often sound really ambiguous. Like, well, what the hell does that mean? Breaking intergenerational trauma. It does play out in really like (laughs) basic, simple life stuff every day, like the mundane stuff, like greats, you know, but that makes a huge difference in the long run, I think. Yeah. And I think it goes back to really, you know, what I talked about at, at the beginning of our time together, the creating sanctuary in our home, right? So like using Dr. Bloom's sanctuary model, um, really encouraging ourselves to be real with each other, both my wife and I, um, to be real with each other and, and encouraging our kids to be real with us and um, encouraging experimentation in the sense that like, you know, try something. If you fail at it, you fail. Like it's whatever. But what did you learn from that experience? And, and, you know, let's have a, let's have a conversation about it. And I think like, I think part of the reason that this can be a tough way to parent is because it takes more work, right? Like it's easier to say, this is how I want you to be. And when you don't meet that ideal, I'm going to punish you um, either physically, verbally, or mentally. Or the authoritarian parenting style, like, because I said so. Like that doesn't give children anything to like grow from or think about. It doesn't stretch or push them to think critically or engage. It's just like, I'm the one with the power and you're not. And so you're going to listen to me. And like, that's, that's not healthy. And we, we, I, we tell our kids a lot, like, you know, we're going to tell you to do something. We're going to expect you to do something. Um, and my kids all know, well, really the older two, the younger ones, not at this point yet. She's questioning everything anyway. Um, but they get to ask why, right? And and I don't get to say because I said so. And so there are times when it's funny because even when they ask for stuff and and I say maybe, um, my middle one at one point was like, Dad, you you know, you always say maybe, why? And I'm like, Well, first of all, I don't always say maybe, but secondly, a maybe isn't a yes or a no. A maybe is I don't have enough information. Um, to make a decision, or I don't have, you know, the, the bandwidth, the brain power to make this decision right now. Like I'm, I'm putting this off to when I can actually put thought behind it and give you a real answer. And you know, and, and so having that conversation um, with our kids that like I want them to understand why we think in the ways that we think, right? And so like, because I think a lot about why I think and act um, in certain ways. And I'm often questioning um, that. And so trying to teach my kids the skill of metacognition and thinking about their thinking and understanding their thinking is important. It was a, it was a concept I learned in grad school and have really held, you know, held dearly to. Um, So it's funny, actually, the living an ethical life and um, thinking about my thinking were both concepts I learned in grad school <laughs> have really served me well in. Um, I'm like taking notes over here for real. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but they, they've served me well in other aspects of my life, both um, personally and professionally. And so um, really trying to understand um, why I, why I act in the way that I act. Um, 
is it because, you know, I, I often take pride in, in how I am as a supervisor, as a manager, um, because I've, I've learned from both supervisors, good and bad that I've had. So I've, I've learned what to avoid to do from my poor supervisors for the ones right. that made me feel like a bad person just for being me. And then I've learned from, from the ones who were, were great supervisors. And so like every job that I've ever had, I've always learned something from that experience, whether it was the job that I wanted to have, like the career I had before I finished my undergrad um, wasn't, well, the jobs I had before I, I finished my undergrad were not jobs I wanted to stay in for a long time or really wanted to be in. And in fact, the reason I, I ended up finishing uh, or was pushed to finish my undergrad was because I realized what I wanted to do as a career, I needed a degree to do it. And so, um, and now through my nonprofit um, career, um, as I've kind of worked my way up the ranks um, and oversee teams of people, like understand, like, am I doing this because I think it's the right thing to do? Um, and what is the effect that I'm having on my on my subordinates, on my staff, on my employees. And so I ask those questions a lot and I'm far from perfect. Um, but I, I would like to think that I'm more, um, as a parent, as a, as a supervisor, as a boss, um, I'd like to think that I'm, I'm more conscious about the effect that I'm having on others. And so I think for my kids, I want them to understand who they are and how they how they're having an effect on others for for better or for worse. And so if they can stop and like I said really make their world a better place and they can think about their thinking and their acting I think then I will have succeeded my wife and I both will will have succeeded in breaking some of those cycles of intergenerational trauma in our immediate family. Ugh, I just love everything that you're saying right now. I think it's such an important perspective. I mean, we have a a lot of different people on the podcast. And I think this perspective that you're bringing, not only about your own individual experience with trauma, but this bigger perspective of intergenerational trauma and how to break those cycles is really important. And you've given some amazing like I said, like tangible examples and also some really cool language, I think for people to kind of marinate on and think about. And um, yeah, you've given us a lot of food for thought. And I would love, um, I always ask everyone this on the podcast, but I think specific with your perspective, if, if you could say anything to a survivor who might be listening right now, who is also in that same space as a, as a survivor of intergenerational trauma, who you know, may have kids or may want kids, like what message would you want to leave them with? I, I would encourage people to discover their authentic selves and, and to express, um, express themselves in a way that is best for them. Um, and I think like, be true to who you are and understand that not everybody will appreciate that um, or understand it. But if you can be true to who you are and really 
take these, you know, take the time to understand what what these reverberations of intergenerational trauma look like in your in your family, in your immediate family. That that's how you can begin to tear down those walls of of trauma in in your family, in your interactions. And so um I would encourage them to to reflect uh in their on their selves first and understand themselves to then be able to to work their way inside out. And so but it's hard work. It's and and I won't pretend like it's easy. I, I've I've struggled. Um it's taken me a long time to get to this point. I mean it's damn near taken me a decade to get to this point. And and having to move away from my family, and so that I had the space to actually have, to to grow and learn and and find out who I am. But once I, I did that work, then I was able to understand how trauma was it affects me still, so that I can get to a point where I can break those cycles in my family. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm pausing just for a second just cuz I'm processing but um yeah, I always have something to say but sometimes I don't and right now is one of those moments but I just really yeah, you've given like everyone such food for thought and I just so appreciate your openness and your vulnerability and your thoughtfulness and um I'm a big believer in like the power of language and like my wheels are turning right now cuz I think language is really powerful and like opening up different channels in our minds and, and challenging us to think differently. And you've given some really cool, like turns of phrases and just some language that like, I think will hopefully be really helpful for listeners and also resonate with them. And it's certainly resonating with me. I just finished my grad school experience and I'm like, yes, I love learning more, (laughs) more, but like knowledge is power. Right. And that's also kind of a theme that's sort of been emerging in your episode, but I just really really appreciate it. Um, and so with that, I mean, I, again, I always kind of like to give the final word to our guests. So before we wrap up, is there kind of any final thoughts you want to share? Yeah. Um, you know, I appreciate, um, giving me this opportunity to share. Um, I hope it's helpful to somebody. Um, and, and I hope that people can, uh, who are hearing this, um, hear that they're not alone. Um, that, even though it's hard work um, and it can seem daunting, it's not impossible. And so I hope that somebody feels encouraged um, by this. Uh, I certainly don't have all the answers. I have some, um, but I'm still learning more. And um, it's funny, and when you were talking about, you know, I, I talking about some of the things I've learned in grad school, um, but one of the things I learned um, was the more that I know, the more I realize I don't know. And so if I ever get to a point where I'm like, oh, I know all of this, I have, I'm failing because <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I feel like I just spent $30,000 to be like, oh my God, I don't know anything. Yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. But I think yeah. that's such a, it's such a key. Like there are some, I have very strong beliefs in, in certain aspects of my life, but then there are other places where I'm like, uh, there's never a place where I can't learn more. And so I think like, we only do better when we know better and you only know better when you pursue that knowledge. So um, it's hard and, and it takes time, but I think like 
you know, our, our families deserve it. And so we can be the change makers in our family, even if it's just doing it for our immediate family. Yeah, I love that. You can only do better if you know better. Um, that feels like a really poignant message to end the podcast on. So again, I just want to say thank you so, so much. And um, yeah, with that, I think we'll wrap up and end the recording. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.